Well, friends, uh, we are beginning a new sermon series here uh, as we kind of work out of this idea of discipleship and, and look at this picture of Christian story. And as we do, uh, just to give you a little glimpse uh, into my life, I come from a family of storytellers. Uh, and uh, my family of storytellers, really the matriarch and patriarch of, of this tradition, uh, was my grandfather, who I actually never met, uh, but it was him and his sister, uh, my Aunt Marie, and they would sit around uh, at, um, over the holidays and tell the, the kids and the um, who are now like aunts and uncles in my world stories. Uh, and even uh, Aunt Marie, I remember as a child, sitting uh, at her feet and listening to her tell stories, and then she passed that along to all the children. And, and so every holiday, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but we would just go and we would sit and we would just tell stories for hours. I mean, like gut-busting, laughing-till-you-cried type stories. Uh, stories like one of my family members who will go unnamed because this is getting beamed to the world, who, you know, put the car in reverse at a four, as a 14-year-old and hit a light pole, and the light pole crushed a poor other family's, um, I almost said suburban or SUV, what's the thing called? A station wagon, remember those? Crushed it with a light pole, and they just left. And they didn't tell them that they crushed their car with a light pole. And we laugh. Um, there's other stories where one family member attacked another uh, with a frying pan, and we laughed at that. We probably shouldn't have laughed at that. That was assault, and it was horrible. But uh, we sat around, and, and we just told these stories, and we laughed. And, and when I was in campus ministry for uh, a decade, what was fascinating is to watch freshmen, because when they showed up and they didn't know each other, do you know what they did? They just sat there and they told the other people stories about themselves. I won this state championship and, and we did this crazy thing. And the first three months of freshman year is basically just storytelling. Why? Why do we tell stories? Well, uh, walking through a, a course recently with Surge, uh, one of the things they said is, is we tell stories because they draw us together. They remind us of a shared history, of shared memories, of shared lives. Our, our personal stories are written through our lives, and they include m- moments that reveal great dignity as we are image bearers of God. They're stories of the depths of brokenness and sin, of the pain of living in a broken world. And oftentimes these stories reveal the love of God and how He has shown Himself to us in powerful ways. Stories make up the narrative of our lives, and they influ- influence us in how we think about the past, how we live in the present, and how we move into the future. As I think about my own stories, and I think about a part of it being my parents' deep love for me, uh, and the fact that I was just sacrificially loved no matter what, it, it wove the story that I was unconditionally loved by my parents, and what that fueled in my life was the ability to take certain risks. It fueled this ability to, to be vulnerable because I knew I was still going to be loved no matter what, and what they did is they painted a beautiful picture of God's love for me. There are also other narratives and other stories that have emerged, like life as an only child in a household with lots of illness and disability. It painted a story of a false narrative, I believe, like, Anthony, you are the glue that has to hold it all together. Or, Anthony, the world is a remarkably dangerous place. And these stories fueled a false sense of control, and it fed into my anxieties and my fears. And so here's what I would just hold out to you today, is that we live out the story of our lives that we tell and we believe. We live out the stories of our lives that we tell 
and we believe. And one of my friends, Tim Gorby, who was a pastor on staff here, he said, where our minds labor, our hearts and actions follow. Where our minds labor, our hearts and our actions follow. And, and, and if we just think about the stories that we tell of our own lives, as we labor there with our minds and with our mouths, our hearts and our lives will inevitably follow. Well, now through the end of the year, we're going to be looking at this picture of the Christian story. We're actually going to be very ambitious. We're going to uh, go th- Genesis to the book of Revelation before the new year, right? How about that? The other people preaching are really thrilled with me for, for this uh, assignment. But, but, but the reason I'm doing this is threefold. One, as I was preaching through one passage in particular in 2 Corinthians, this thought hit me uh, that even in the church now, we are living out stories that are false stories. We have mistaken identities. We're having identity crises. We're trying to create our own identities versus receiving the identities that we have in Jesus and the story he has woven together for us. That's one reason. Second reason is I'm increasingly convinced that we just, if we talk about the Bible being a means of grace, one of the ways that we are shaped to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that we are more and more biblically illiterate as we go along. And one of the main ways that we can grow in our ability to just open the Bible and, and, and feed on it for ourselves and point other people to the person of Jesus from God's Word is understanding the overarching story of redemption that we see woven in Scripture. And so that's the second reason. My prayer is that this will help us be able to feel more confident and, and fall in love with this book. The third is, as part of our discipleship pathway, at least part of my dream, is to have just some basic Christian worldview classes that we walk through. And this was actually going to be one, or at least I was dreaming of that. And so I figured, hey, uh, let's walk through this together as a church. And so that's where we're headed. That's why we're headed that way. And let me pray for us as we begin this journey of looking at the Christian story. Lord, my prayer for myself and my friends who are watching here today, is that you will cause us to see and to fall in love with your story of redemption. And that we may increasingly find ourselves in that story and none other. And that we will live out presently and live with hope as we move forward in the hope of that resurrection. Lord, will you make that so among us? Will you Use this time to increase our love for your word so that we may say, oh, how I love your word. It is my meditation all the day. Father, will you help this time to bring hope to those who are suffering, who are hopeless? Would you just capture our hearts? Would you go with my words? Will you watch over and protect what I say? Will you give us open hearts to receive from your Holy Spirit this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as we begin, uh, the first bullet point, I guess, we're going to talk about is God's story. We're going to talk about God's story. And this is just a visual. Some of you might have seen this before. David Arms is an artist. Uh, Scotty Smith, who was David Arms' pastor, commissioned him uh, to basically, he said, hey, uh, David, paint a picture about the story of redemption. And so this is it. You'll see it. It's hanging upstairs uh, in the lobby here, uh, but let me unpack for you what God's story is, and, and he calls this the greatest story ever told, and it's really in four parts. You really can take this whole book of the Bible, all 66 books, and follow the arc 
of this narrative that we see depicted here. It's creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And I'll explain what those are here in a minute. Uh, what David Arms would say, you can't see those tags very well, but it's, it's life, love, or life, loss, love, life. So that first panel on your left is creation, right? God, uh, essentially, uh, when everything was as God meant it to be. But then that second panel is what we call fall. This is the tragic intrusion of sin and death. This is the serpent. This results in the pervasive brokenness of all people and everything God has made. And you can see the color is toned down. There's more grays. There's two ravens sitting there, right? Now, here's a cool thing, and, and what I, I'd encourage you to go to davidarms.com and read his breakdown of what all these symbols mean. It's really cool. But these ravens, uh, you'll see one looking back at what has been lost but you'll see one looking forward at the hope of redemption. And even the ravens, you think of those as kind of these melancholy, terrible birds, right? Who loves ravens? Well, the reason he chose those is even Jesus says, hey, look at the ravens. I feed them. I will care for you. Elijah in the wilderness, when he was despairing of life, do you know who fed him? Ravens. That's what God sent. And so even in those birds, there's hope. And the third panel is redemption. It's God's astonishing promise to redeem his fallen image bearers in creation through the graceful work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so you have the imagery of, of something that basically uh, died and returned to life. You have butterflies. You have an egg, which references new life. You have the central tree in that part of the story, which is the cross there in the center. And then finally, you have the last piece, consummation. This is the magnificent fulfillment of God's plan to gather and cherish people together and to live with them in a more than restored world called the new heavens and the new earth. So you see birds of different colors, right? That's every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Jesus. You see uh, this fuller reality of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, reaching its total fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. And you may have heard this taught before this last panel as recreation or restoration. I'm calling it consummation because I believe it's not just a recreation going back to original creation. It's not just simple restoration. It's more than that. It's a fuller restoration. It's the consummation of God's ultimate plan. It's better than the Garden of Eden. And as Nancy Guthrie, an author and theologian, says, in part because there's no snakes there. No snakes are getting into the new heavens and the new earth. So it is fuller than just headed back to Eden, which I always envision as being a golf course. It's really weird. Um, and so that's the picture of the story of redemption, God's story, the greatest story that's ever been told. And, and let me just show you one thread from Scripture, just to show you that I'm not making it up, just to show you that we can read Genesis to Revelation, and there's threads that run all the way through. And, and, and as I say this, uh, there's two threads I'm going to pull on this morning, but here's the first one. Genesis 3.15, you've heard me teach on this before if you've been around. This is God talking to the serpent after the fall. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring That offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Other versions will translate that first bruise as crush your head. And this is essentially God's first promising of his restoration or his consummation of this plan in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the offspring of the woman who is going to ultimately crush his head. Anthony Hukama, he's a, a theologian, he says this, From this point on, all of the Old Testament looks forward pointing forward and eagerly awaits the promised Redeemer. This is a hinge point in Scripture. 
Now, the book of Romans, it's a book that uh, many are familiar with, and we usually love like the first eight chapters. We kind of skip past 9 and 10, a lot of practical stuff in 12, 13, 14. But then verse 16, we've kind of given up. We're like, all the meat and stuff is back there. And so we kind of quit reading. But here's a verse that sometimes we may view as a, a throwaway, but, but I want you to read it in light of what I just read in, in, in Genesis. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's talking to the church in Rome that, that Jesus is uh, with, right? He will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's that threat headed into the New Testament. And then finally, we see uh, the full realization of this in the, in the last book, the next to last chapter of the Bible. He said, this is John talking about um, uh, end events. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, the key to the bottomless pit, in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And then in ten, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, in sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Friends, that's a thread that I want you to see from Genesis to Revelation of this one complete story of restoration. So here's what I would offer. You know, why, first of all, do we talk about this big picture story as we jump in? Well, I think there's a couple of implications. Uh, this is kind of cliche. It's a little hokey. My son would call this corn uh, if he were here, a little corny. But I've heard it say that said that history is his story. History is his story. And, and I would say that's 100% true. And as we see the broader picture of redemption, what we recognize is we are not the center of that story. That his story is actually for his glory and not ours. We're going to see that really early on, even in creation, that He is the Creator, and we're the critter. We're the creation. And we never cross that line. Yet we constantly make ourselves the center of the story. We're okay with being God-centered so long as God is human-centered, or us-centered, or me-centered. And what sitting in this story of redemption will do is it will pull that camera mercifully off of ourselves and back to Him and His work time and time again. And the reason we're talking about Christian story on the heels of this picture of discipleship is that understanding this story and where we fit in it is actually the key to us looking more and more like Jesus. As we're able to examine our own story in light of that story, we can help others also pull their identity not from what we're angrily or frustratingly fighting for, but what's been given to us through His work of redemption. So here's a question, and every Saturday I'm sending out questions now, if you get that weekly email, for you to walk through throughout the week. But what are the stories you tell? What's your creation? How the world should look? What you're created for? What is your fall story? Who's your enemy? Who or what is responsible for your difficulty? What's your redemption story? What's your savior? What do you go to for comfort, for escape, for release? What will bring your hope? And then how does that align with his story? You see, you've heard me say this in recent weeks, but if our primary enemy is anything other but sin and death, and if our Savior is anyone other than Jesus Christ, then we are not living out of a Christian story. 
Here's a second thought. And it's the best part of the story, right? So you saw the broad overview of God's story. Here's the best part. John 1, 1 to 2 and 14. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning God. So there's the creation language, in the beginning. Okay? And then in 14, we see that that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so friends, who this is talking about that was there in the beginning and that became flesh and dwelt among us is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the best part of the story. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus is the chapter on which the whole plot turns. Jesus is the chapter in which the whole plot turns. So if we live a story that doesn't include Jesus, we're living some form of false story. The Old Testament moves towards Christ. The New moves out of Him and towards this picture of consummation. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection becomes the true hope of the world. Now we read some of this, so there's the beginning. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. Romans 8, we read this in the service earlier. But, but, but do you know when Jesus comes, He does come for those He saved, but He also comes to restore the world as far as the curse is found as we sing in joy to the world. Every blade of grass has undergone the curse of Adam. It says because of Adam, because of his sin and rebellion. And when Jesus comes back, he undoes all of it as far as the curse is found. And we've read some of it, but Romans 8.21 says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's talking about when Jesus returns. For in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. First Peter 1 3. Blessed be the God, and this is the second thread we're pulling on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then finally, this is where all of this is headed. I'm pulling on this thread again. A little longer, but just listen to it. Just listen to this story. Don't write anything down. Just listen to what Jesus will do when he returns. And listen to it in the realm of whatever suffering you're walking through right now. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And listen to this. He also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Those last words are really important. We don't believe the resurrection is true. If we don't believe that God's word is trustworthy, we are a people without hope. Why is this hopeful? Why is Jesus the best page 
in the story? Well, basically, Jesus is the down payment of the coming restoration. The resurrection is the first event of God's promised resolution to the rebellion in the garden. And, and I look at it as a movie trailer. Do any of you like watching movie trailers? I love watching movie trailers. Uh, you know, some of y'all are like, no, that's weird. Um, but but in our in our family, sometimes we'll just go through Netflix or Amazon and we'll just watch the movie trailers in part because it gets us really excited about the movie, right? And so in a way, and this is very simplistic, but in a way the resurrection is a movie trailer of a greater portion of history to come in his redemption. Scott Sauls wrote this week, he said, we all need a story of life that outlasts the story of death. A story that says, hang in there and hang on, for this shall pass. A story that helps us find joy in the sorrow, beauty in the ashes, light in the darkness, intimacy in the fear, love in the losses, water in the wilderness, music in the angst, and yes, even life in the dying. N.T. Wright would say focusing on the resurrection helps us to imagine God's future into our present sorrows and losses. And in that imaging, in finding our place in the story that is trustworthy and true, still be able to find truth and beauty, meaning and hope. Friends, we all have our own resurrection stories. We don't just have our grand narratives, but we each live out our own resurrection stories. I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to talk about something I saw in current events this week, and it's surrounding the uh, Breonna Taylor uh, rulings from the judges and what have you, and and whenever I venture into these worlds, let me just make it really clear, I'm not making a qualitative judgment on what decisions were made or not made. Uh, I am not propping up the people I am talking about as being the harbinger of truth and the best people in the world. I just want to head those emails off at the pass. Okay. I also want to say that there are a lot of people who are grieving right now on many sides. Our friends who are people of color and those, as I watched this week, who have relatives and family members in places like law enforcement, there is a lot of grief and there is a lot of anger. And let me also encourage us, instead of posting unhelpful memes and becoming experts in things we don't understand, to sit and listen and grieve with those who grieve, even if they're grieving differently. I think that's part of us being the body of Christ. But let me go back to what I saw in this resurrection story that I saw lived out right in front of me. It was an NBA pregame show. And they were actually, that was what the whole pregame show was on, was this uh, Breonna Taylor situation and everything that had transpired. And there were two people, Jalen Rose and Jay Williams, who are commentators and former basketball players. And, and they both said something so fascinating to me as I listened. They both said, hey, We've lived through 400 years of oppression, and it hasn't necessarily changed. It's changed, but it's not going to necessarily uh, totally change in our lifetime. But then you know what they said? They said, but we need to do what we can now and hold on for future generations. Now, they were talking about voting, but do you hear the resurrection story that they were telling there? They were saying, there is this coming day we hope of true justice and true hope. And we want to hold on now so that in the future others can live out this grand reality. And I just thought to myself, 
Those are the resurrection stories that we tell each other. That's how we find hope. That's how we keep going, is by telling these stories. And friends, in the Christian faith, we have this more grand resurrection story than any other that can be told. Do you know why? Oftentimes, people talk about the hope that Christians have as as believing in spite the facts and having nothing to do with anything historical. But do you know what? (laughs) The Christian faith and the Christian hope actually places its trust in someone who came to us in history, who really rose from the dead, and that is the down payment of a breaking into history that will one day come. You know, our friends on uh, the NBA countdown were placing their hope in something they just really hope comes, but they look back and they're like, we haven't necessarily seen it in history, at least as we read history, but we hope it happens. And as Christians, we can say, Jesus came, he died, he defeated sin and death. Therefore, we can believe that he will do it again for good and ultimately. As we focus on the resurrection and that part of the story, it becomes the Christian's story. Second Corinthians 5.17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's saying for the person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that old has gone away. Death no longer reigns. He has already begun his redemptive work. As I was thinking about it, I was like, what picture do we have of something like this? And this might be lame, but I think of a snow globe. (laughs) What's a snow globe? It's this little kind of perfect reality within this broader context of reality. And and essentially, uh, what this is saying is, is we are little hints of heaven after we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Little pockets of redemption. Heaven working backwards in our lives. And if we believe that's already going on in us, that moves us away from fighting and the anger that we've experienced because It helps us love our enemies because our cosmic enemy has already been defeated. That person is not our enemy. That thing is not our enemy. Sin and death are our enemies. And they've been defeated. Satan is simply a lion on a leash. The man who commissioned that painting, Scotty Smith, says this, each of us is called to live as a character in and a carrier of his story of redemption and restoration. And so, friends, we live in a world that doesn't have hope in Jesus or his redemption in view. And so, what's one specific way you can live out his character this week of being a character in and a carrier of his story of redemption? Now, let me also say this. For those of us who don't yet know Jesus, the story of redemption is not yet yours. Mike Williams, one of my professors, said this, Jesus is the one who by his death purchases us for God. He is our way into the story, the one who makes his story ours. He's the one who opens our eyes to see it and embrace it, and and we can't come to him on our own good works, and we can't come to him and make sense of him through creation. In fact, God is the one who actually makes sense of creation for us. It was made for his glory. It was made good. And so if you do not know Jesus, let me encourage you to make his story yours this morning. And what that means 
is that's you simply acknowledging in your heart that I am a broken rebel against him, I am dead without you, and I need the Savior, Jesus Christ, to be my only path to redemption, my only identity. And that by simply believing in your heart and proclaiming with your lips that Jesus is Savior and Lord, that's how that story is made yours. You can do that by praying by yourself, those words I just said. I would encourage you to tell another person, but make his story yours. Call on him in faith and let another person in to join you in that journey of new creation. And so as I conclude, I want to read to you this one segment of, uh, it was the two towers, Lord of the Ring, two towers. This is the second time I've quoted Lord of the Rings and bringing it back. But as I've re-watched these movies and gone back and looked at the text, it is amazing how Tolkien captures this story of redemption from beginning to end. And this one scene was after a battle in Gondor. It's towards the end of the two towers. Frodo almost kills Sam, his uh, his partner, uh, with uh, he holds a knife at his throat. And Frodo collapses back, and he looks at Sam and he goes, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam goes, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes, you didn't want to know the end. Because how can the end be happy? How can the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. And a new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. Friends, as we look at God's story. May God give us the grace to keep going and to hold on to something. We hold on to the trustworthiness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that's a down payment of the consummation of the redemption that is guaranteed. That's the story that the followers of Christ tell. May he give us the ability to do so. Let me close this in prayer. Father, this week, as I've walked with people who don't even want to know the end of the story, because we've given into this thought of how can it possibly be good when everything is so bad, even my own heart straying in that direction, I just know I need to come before you this morning and beg you by the power of your Spirit, to give us something that we can't muster on our own. And that's hope. And that's hope in you. And that's hope, Jesus, in your resurrection. That's hope in your mercy. That's hope in your justice. That's hope in your new life. That's hope in your resurrection body that will never be touched by sin and death. 
Lord, protect us from running after resurrection stories that offer no real hope. Jesus, make yourself more real to us in this season than you've ever been before. Will you move? Move in all of our hearts. Make us a church and a people that live out your story of redemption. We love you. We thank you that we can pray these things because your word is trustworthy. Help us to have faith in it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.